the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. It's a busy Friday on the Country Hour today with a lot happening. Charges have been laid on 15 animal activists over a uh, protest at a abattoir near Benalla earlier this year. We'll speak about those details shortly on the program. Also today, the Senate inquiry into the plan to extend the Murray-Darling Basin plan has been released. It says a few interesting things, basically saying the extension should pass the Parliament. Dead projects that won't return much water should be scrapped and gives the tick to more water buybacks, saying it acknowledges the impact buybacks have on communities, but in the need of time, a cost-efficient way to get the water is to buy it back from sellers in the basin. What do you think about that? You can send us a text 0467 842 We'll also look at dairy farmer numbers in the state, which are declining at, at an increased rate as well. Why do you think that is when prices in dairy at the moment are high? You can send me a text 0467 842 Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Angus Fairley today. G'day, Angus. G'day, Was. In far north Queensland, there's a battle brewing over the future of barramundi fishing. As the Queensland government pushes ahead to ban net fishes along the state's east coast, on the west coast, fishers face an uncertain future after being presented with a proposal which would shut them out of large sections of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Those gulf fishers met in Cairns yesterday to call for the implementation to be delayed until the economic and environmental impacts of the proposed closures are properly assessed. Secretary of the Gulf Commercial Fishers Association, Claudine Ward, has been fishing the Gulf waters since the 1970s, and she says the whole process has been handled poorly. We tried for a couple of months to find out what net-free zones they were talking about, and got no response until um, September when we saw a horrible map come up where virtually the whole of the Gulf was going to be closed to gillnets. That's since been changed. We've now back to four net-free zones, which still is 20% of our protein intake. What does that mean for an operator like yourself? Well, for an operator like myself, it means we're going to have a close neighbour, which is one of the reasons we like being out there, no one to bump your elbows with. And it will also mean that the threatened endangered species that they're saying the closures are to help will be under more threat because there will be more nets in a, in a more condensed area. And no one was available from the Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries to speak about the fishers' concerns. In a statement, the department says consultation still has one week to run and no final decision has been made. Retired King Island dairy farmer Gary Strickland is hoping the cheese factory and farms will be bought up and revitalised by a new owner. The fifth generation dairy farmer supplied milk to the factory for 45 years and says in its heyday it was taking in 30 million litres, but now only takes around 7 or 8 million litres. Mr Strickland retired five years ago and leased his farm to a Tasmanian company to continue running the property as a dairy but it ultimately bought it and shut down the dairy, converting the property to beef. He says the steep decline in dairy farm numbers has made it hard to attract workers from the mainland to keep the dairy industry on the island viable. The best, the best thing that could probably happen to the dairy industry if they sold it to a 
to a company that were that was interested in growing out the King Island dairy brand, and they would have to then look for suppliers here on the island to be able to survive, and that would grow out the whole industry, and that would be the best thing that could happen to the island again because they'd have to put out more product and and employ more people and build up their supply base, and that would be great. To the Northern Territory now, three years after planting its first trees near Catherine, huge fruit-growing company Manbaloo is facing a few challenges in its plan to grow jackfruit. Its Ballangilly farm is infested with wallabies at the moment, and they've been eating the bark and anything else they can reach on the young jackfruit trees. Farm manager Trevor Nelson says it's been a mission to keep the wallabies out. The biggest one has been wallabies. I've put electric fences up. I've, um, I've, I've put other normal fences up that they've just busted through um, to save them. I did put 1,000-litre um, pods. I chopped the frames out and I put them around, and um, which kept them away until these um, bigger ones got to mature. And now we've fully fenced the whole area which then they also have um, busted through, jumping over. So we've gone through and we've extended um, the whole, all of the fence and put shade mesh the whole way around it and um, a big skirt on the outside so they can't dig under and they can't jump over no more. And staying in the Northern Territory, it's harvest time for what's regarded as the world's smelliest fruit. I'm talking, of course, about durians, those large spiky fruit with a smell so offensive that in some countries they're banned on public transport and in hotels. Han Shung Sia says the durian season in the Territory started off really well, and while the hot weather has lowered yields, he'll still get 15 tonnes of fruit. This is how he describes the smell. Oh, we got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. Uh, it is a uh, it's a mixture of really strong garlic and and you know a bit of old socks, but it's a very fragrantly pleasant smell for me. Some people say I have a little bit of sulfuric smell, like like maybe a leaking gas tap from a leaking gas bottle. And and yeah, so it, it's it's for us and most Asian, it's it's a fragrant that we, we we would you know kind of linger towards and you know trace towards really quickly. Yeah, no thanks, was that's it for rural news. <laughs> Thanks very much for that, Agus Verley. When the farmer describes the fruit smell, his own fruit smell as smelling like that, I wonder what that means for the rest of us. But I oh, don't mind durian sometimes. It is 12 past 12 on the country. I welcome aboard Warwick along with you for the program today. More of those details on what is being suggested in the Senate for that legislation on the Murray-Darling Basin plan for you shortly. It was a government uh, majority committee looking at that legislation and it says the government's legislation should be passed. We will have a look at that and so get some reaction for you on that shortly. But this has come out recently, actually a couple of developments on the uh, wide protests of uh, protesters at an abattoir north of Benalla. 
That occurred in April, way back in April. Shut down access to that Benalla abattoir, not allowing trucks in or out. Police were in attendance. A lot of media were in attendance on that day as well. Well, a number of people, number of animal activists have now been charged over that with the Farm Transparency Project, the group responsible saying 15 animal activists have been charged over that animal slaughterhouse occupation as they term it. Uh, Seven people were charged actually earlier than that. Uh, Those people have been through the courts without convictions recorded. Uh, Margot Andre is from Australian Pork Limited, the peak industry for the pork, uh, peak industry body for the pork industry. industry and can join you now on the program. Margot Andre, welcome back to the country. Oh, thanks, Warwick. Great to be back. 15, char- 15 more activists charged for the events of April 13th. What's the industry reaction to that? Look, it's an interesting reaction. I think it's a feeling that there is going to be accountability and there is consequences for these bullies and these thugs that do openly flaunt that they break the law. I think it's probably good for our judicial system as well that there is a follow-through rather than what they, how these people operate. They think it's okay to do this, whereas our industries go above and beyond to meet every regulation, do the right thing, ensure they're listening to community sentiment. So um, to be honest, I think it's good. I think there should be good consequences and I think it restores a little bit of faith back in our judicial system. Seven protesters, including the founder of Farm Transparency Project, Chris Delforce, were charged on the day the faced court. No convictions were recorded. Uh, for those offences. Do you think this case of these 15 uh, charges will be any different? I hope so. I really do. It is really tough and I have been subject to their, their bullying and their trespassing and their harassment and my industry has for decades and they just keep flaunting and they keep going to a next level. We work with really good, reputable Um, animal welfare groups who have an aim of animal welfare. These guys, they're money raisers. They're just troublemakers. They're disruptors to really good law-abiding businesses and people doing the right thing. So I think I really hope there is a consequence for them out of this. But even starting with charges does mean that what they're doing is wrong and it should be called out. There's acknowledgement from the group that what they're doing is wrong, and I'll read some of their release to you. It says, while we're aware that we broke the law by entering Benella Slaughterhouse and locking ourselves to the gas chamber used to painfully suffocate pigs, we felt that this was the only option we could take given the severity of the footage and blatant refusals from Australian Pork Limited and the Federal Department of Agriculture to meet with us. In court, the police failed to provide evidence to justify harsh penalties they were pushing for, end quote. Um, What's your response to that? This group says they have to do this because you will not meet with them otherwise. So the bottom line is we won't meet with them because they are lawbreakers. They are bullies and they are thugs. We meet with reputable animal welfare groups and we work alongside them as we work on continuous improvements. At the care of our pigs is our highest priority and continuous improvement, millions of dollars in research, really strict regulations and guidelines working with government. We do everything we can, but good animal welfare is fundamental to what we do. And where there are things that need to be improved, we will absolutely do that as an industry. We're the first to say, if something's not right, we will continue to invest in that continuous improvement through research and handling. We do know that 
as much as um, to care for the pigs, it's about the people as well. So we keep investing in training and working with those abattoirs. So we'll continue to do everything we can to make sure that we do the best that we can. But what these people do is not about good animal welfare because um, it's really a difference in ideology. They don't believe livestock should be farmed in this country, whereas we are very privileged to provide good, safe, reliable protein from animals raised well to feed the communities. And particularly at this time when people are struggling with bills and life and everything else, we, we're even more privileged to know that we play a part in a, a nutritious, balanced diet for Australians. So we're going to hold our head high. We're going to keep doing continuous improvement. We're going to keep working with the community sentiment to understand where we need to improve. But we will not work with people who break the law and it is dangerous what they do and they need to be called out for it and it does nothing to improve animal welfare. Yet their investigation did bring about some changes though, didn't it, from Farm Transparency Project. PrimeSafe investigated their footage to... Uh, charges of breaching the Meat Industry Act have been placed upon a Laverton North abattoir. We, we've spoken about that on the Country Hour yesterday. But they've also said in their statement they finished an investigation into the treatment of the pigs at this Benella abattoir and CA Sinclair, the operator, uh, have had requirements to changes of work practices and including and equipment, sorry, including installation of CCTV in areas of that. So some changes have been made as a result, yeah. So, and with Prime Safe, that was based on their own investigation. It was nothing, they've assured me it was nothing to actually do with the Farm Transparency Project. So, so, so this group is claiming claim. credit for another Yeah, and it's not. Opinion. And it's actually... Um, the team at Benalla actually stepped up and said, if there's something more we can be doing, we will absolutely do it. So they worked very closely with the regulators. They already had level of CCTV. They just worked with the regulator if the regulator wanted more that they would work with them. So um, again, the industry itself is stepping up to if there are things we can be doing better, we will absolutely do it. But we're going through the right channels, working with the regulators. And in other parts of it, it is actually um, some of our businesses are just sort of saying it's just too hard to keep, you know, with this worry of the trespassers, with this worry of bullying, the ongoing harassment, getting staffing. Every time they break into an avatar, they do disrupt the supply chain which not only is about food on the table, it's about the care of the animals. We're not a tap. You can't turn them off. We, the care of our animals is our priority. So their disruptions to it actually potentially put harm back on the animals. So they're really, they're really off track with this. So we're going to continue to work with reputable, good animal welfare um, groups, work with the government, and where we can improve, we will absolutely improve and we'll keep investing. But care of the animals and care of our people is our number one priority. And if 15 people are charged under these rules in, in Victoria, not not convicted yet, uh, or, uh, or uh, well, they haven't had their day in court yet, but if 15 charges have been laid, do you see that as a deterrent to more uh, campaigners shutting down abattoirs at all? Look, this is what I actually say to these people. Um from a place of care, some of the things that you are doing are putting yourself in danger. Having charges against your name impacts your future. So before you put your hand up to do this as the ideology of someone else, actually do your homework and have an understanding, is, is this who you are? Is this how you would want to be known? Is this what you want to do to families, to businesses? Um, you know, have a think about it because there are risks involved and you are impacting your future. But from the other place, it's 
you know, we're going to continue to do what we do in terms of working with regulators to do the best and put our animals and our people first. So um, if they do get charged, I think it demonstrates that we can have confidence in our judicial system for a group who blatantly flaunt the rules, call out that they're breaking into properties and put themselves and others in danger. Margot Andre, thanks for your time. Thanks, Warwick. That's Margot Andre there, the CEO of Australian Pork Limited, speaking to you on the Country Hour today. Let's talk dairy farmer numbers now on the Country Hour. Dairy farmers continue to leave the industry. And recently, the Australian Dairy uh, Products Federation told a Senate inquiry the national milk pool in Australia, the amount of milk produced by Australian farms, has dropped to 30-year lows. And according to new data, this has accelerated last financial year in Victoria, the largest milk-producing state in the nation, as Emma Field reports. Regulator Dairy Food Safety Victoria reported in its recently released annual report the number of dairy farms has dropped by 231 compared to last year, leaving 2,796 dairy farms for the year ending the 30th of June. Every dairy farm is required to have a DFSV licence to operate in Victoria and according to the regulator, the 8.3% drop in farm licences is the biggest contraction they've ever seen. Mark Billing is the president of Dairy Farmers Victoria and he's not surprised by the drop. It's just a reflection of the pressures that are on dairy farmers, um, even with good milk crops. I think one of the, the major contributors um, is the lack of, of labour, a labour availability and as farmers are getting a little bit older and, and you know, the ones that are left are a little bit bigger and we need to have a good source of skilled labour and um, labour that can assist with, with milking duties. So what can be done about that or is there nothing that can be done about it? Well, look, I think there can be some things done. I think one of the solutions is um, a higher level of automation, but the only problem with that is it's, it comes at a high capital expense. So... Whilst we do have robots um, milking systems in our industry, I think one of the things, as I said, is the capital investment is massive. And I think it needs to evolve a little bit more. We've got another opportunity uh, in Victoria with virtual fencing. However, at the moment, uh, legislation uh, doesn't allow us to use virtual fencing. But Dairy Farmers Victoria is working very hard to um, understand what we need to do to bring that, that technology forward. We've seen over the life of the Murray-Darling Basin plan that there's around 400 million litres of milk that's disappeared out of northern Victoria, which can be attributed to, to the plan and the reduction of, of the consumptive pool. I think there's also the seasonal impact um, across the board, across the state, whether it's fire or flood. Um, natural disasters has had an impact on the milk pool. Um, and look, I think the event of 2016 with the clawback um, meant that there was a number of farmers that left the industry as well at that time. But uh, I think from the year 2000, there's, there's been a, a shrinkage in the milk pool. And what we're working on now is what is, is the actual impact of a milk pool that's around 8 billion litres? Um, what processes can survive in that environment? And, and what can we do to stem the uh, decline because uh, at some point uh, the milk pool will create a a more domestic focus and I think we're seeing that already in, in Australia. 
while farmer licences dropped, there were five more licences issued for dairy manufacturers, up to 205. Licences are Dairy Food Safety Victoria's main source of income. This meant total licence revenue was down 2% to $5.8 million. However, DFSV did slash its spending by almost half a million dollars over the year. Mark Billing says farmer licence fees have gone up. Yeah, look, there was a small increase in the licence fee. Um, I would suspect that's part of the story. Are you getting value for money out of this agency, which doesn't doesn't exist in other states? Yeah, well, I think we've actually got a, a good opportunity, given that Dairy Food Safe Victoria operates outside of um, the more common uh, food authorities that are in the other states. We've actually, I believe, for Victoria, that's an advantage because we've got an authority that's just focused on dairy. As far as value for money goes, I think um, at this point, yes, we do. We've got um, two dairy farmer representatives on the Dairy Food Safe Victoria board. So they're putting some governance around the expenditure and and the licence fee structures and so on. So I think regulation uh, is not sort of the the flavour of the month, but in this case, I believe that that gives consumers confidence that um, what they're consuming particularly out of Victoria, is is very safe. At dairy farmer level, we have our farm audits and factories uh, audited um, even more rigorously. We're lucky in Victoria having Dairy Food Safe Victoria um, as the agency that's maintaining that safe uh, dairy level. And speaking of audits, the number of farm audits dropped by 43% to 823 for the year, but 423 audits of 223 manufacturing sites by the regulator was on par with last year. And DFSV also revealed 13 new licences for dairy manufacturers were approved last financial year. More people wanting to manufacture the milk, fewer dairy farmers to provide it. Interesting stats about the amount of dairy farmers in Victoria. Many of you sending in your thoughts uh Get a dairy farms increasing, are the number of farms decreasing, or is the area taken up by dairy farms decreasing? Farms are getting bigger, says Wendy in sale. But Wendy, the amount of milk being produced is going down, so I'd say both are heading down there, as you've just heard uh, there. Uh, G'day, Warwick. I must be an abnormality as I recently went back into dairy after retiring from it in July 2022. The beef game just wasn't cutting it. I'm doing things smaller, and it's been much more enjoyable than the last few years, says Rob at Borkan in southwest Victoria. Rob, that is amazing. And we should follow up with you. Rob, you should have me out there for the country hour. We should talk about this more. Get in contact or I'll get in contact with my people, your people, which is literally me. We should talk more. That's an interesting comment, though. Thank you for sending that in. We'll talk more base, and I can see your text in that on that in just a moment. But let's talk vaccines right now, because Australian and American scientists are teaming up to work on African swine fever vaccines. That would be the first of its kind in the world. African swine fever has never been detected in Australia, but it's widespread on the country's doorstep and throughout Southeast Asia. Swine fever experts from the CSIRO's Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness will evaluate a vaccine developed by US biotech firm MBF Therapeutics. And Angus Furley spoke with the centre's Dr David Williams about the partnership and what it could mean. We've partnered with a US company uh, called uh, MBF Therapeutics who have developed uh, a vaccine platform called TMAX, which targets 
uh, T cells of the immune system, which are one of the parts of the immune system that, that's very important for um, producing uh, adaptive immune responses following infection. Uh, so they have developed a, a candidate vaccine for African swine fever, which we're working with them to evaluate uh, in our high containment laboratories in Geelong. Okay, and the lab at Geelong, it's one of only very few in the world that is, is placed to do that sort of evaluation work? That's right, yep. So uh, as I mentioned, we're a high containment laboratory, so that means we can work with um, viruses that are, that are high risk for, for livestock or humans uh, safely um, in contained laboratory facilities. So you're actually working with live samples of African swine fever? We do, yeah. We, we do research and we also uh, perform diagnostics. So clearly uh, containing that virus being paramount because of the, the risks that it poses. Yeah, absolutely, Angus. And just tell me a bit about African swine fever, David, and why the development of this vaccine is so important. Uh, so African swine fever um, is a, a contagious um, and highly lethal uh, disease of pigs. It only infects pigs. It doesn't infect humans. So eating infected pork uh, is safe for humans but it's really devastated the, the global pork industry over the last 15 years. Um, it's gone from uh, being confined to Africa to now spreading to, to five continents around the world. Uh, and it's on our doorstep. It, it's, uh, it emerged uh, in Timor-Leste and, and, and Papua New Guinea uh, in the highlands there. So it's, a, it's considered one of the top biosecurity uh, risks and threats to Australia. And many experts in the animal health field can now consider African swine fever to be the worst uh, livestock pandemic in history. Okay, so you've got this vaccine candidate. You're going to do this uh, evaluation work, as you said, and I'm, I'm sure that's highly scientific and technical. But in, in broad terms, what does that evaluation work involve? What that work will involve is a, an initial phase uh, that will be based in the laboratory. So we'll be doing laboratory testing uh, on that vaccine um, using our uh, African swine fever research tools and we'll be evaluating how well that, that vaccine uh, works in inducing that T-cell immunity that I mentioned before. And the next stage will be to move to, to pigs. Once we're satisfied that we've got the candidate uh, in an optimised form, we'll then move to evaluating the, uh, the, um, the candidate in pigs, uh, which of course is the natural host and, and that's our, our target species for vaccination. Have you made a start on that work? We have, yes. We've made a start recently. So we've, um, we've uh, recruited a, a postdoctoral research scientist and um, have all of our approvals in place uh, to begin the laboratory phase. Uh, and that, that has just recently started, actually. So we're, we're raring to go and, and very excited to uh, see what results we can achieve. And have you got a rough timeline on, on how long this work will take? It can vary. It depends on how successful those initial experiments are and whether or not we need to go back and work with MBFT to re-optimise uh, the vaccine candidate and, and tweak it so we can improve the performance. Um, once we've got a candidate, um, it can take about a year or so to get through the, the animal trials and experimentation. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the regulatory phase, which can also be time-consuming. And just on the timeline, I suppose we did have demonstrated to us during COVID that uh, if the imperative is there, some of these timeframes can be can be expedited. Yes, that's right. Um, we, we we would need to resource that. I mean, obviously in COVID, that was extremely well resourced around the globe in hundreds of different laboratories. So that's something we would need to look at um, to to expedite.
But yep, in theory, we can we can do that. That's Dr. David Williams, African swine fever expert at the CSIRO's Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness, speaking with Angus Verley. Isn't it incredible to think back when Angus, uh, not when Angus, when African swine fever was the biggest threat to biosecurity for this country? We, we've had sort of foot and mouth and lumpy skin scares since then. Varroa mite actually arriving at our school, at our shores, but African swine fever still at the doorstep to Australia and still a big risk to pig populations and other animal populations uh, in this country. It is uh, 30 or 27 to one here on the country. I work along with you. Millie Spencer's also with you. She's in the regional newsroom with regional news headlines. Hi, Millie. G'day, Was. A free drop-in counselling service in Dalesford will remain open over the weekend to anyone affected by the recent crash tragedy in the town. The dedicated facility on Raglan Street will be open from 9am until 5pm on both Saturday and Sunday before permanently closing on Monday. Hepburn Shire Council says to date close to 50 people have accessed mental health support at the site. Anyone needing support from Monday is encouraged to call Central Highlands Rural Health. The City of Greater Bendigo is hoping a push by residents can help the regional city land more airlines and routes. The City Council is running an online survey which is open until the 7th of December and wants residents to detail where they want to travel, how much they're willing to pay and their thoughts on the airport's new terminal. Bendigo is home to one commercial passenger airline service which is delivered by Qantas flying to Sydney and back. A Regional Development Australia committee says this week's nationwide Optus outage highlights the need for temporary mobile roaming during emergencies. For seven years, RDA Grampians has advocated for mobile roaming capabilities to allow people to use any mobile network to access data and calls in the event of an emergency. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has told the organisation this is technically possible and would save lives. RDA Grampians Chairperson Stuart Benjamin says the impacts of the Optus outage could have been even worse if it occurred during a disaster such as a bushfire. Victoria's peak body for psychiatrists says a new Senate inquiry has confirmed specialist concerns about regional areas' access to support for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. ADHD is the most common mental health condition in Australian children aged under 18, but the inquiry found people were waiting years for help. Chair of the Victorian branch of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, Simon Straffache, says cost and location are two major barriers facing regional Victorians when seeking ADHD diagnoses and treatment. And for more local news anytime, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Millie. Millie there, Millie Spencer there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. My microphone stand fell over then, but we've made it. And luckily we've made it in time to speak to Bri McPherson, who is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Bri. Hi, how are you going, Warwick? I'm better now. How's it looking around Victoria? It's starting to get hot. It is, yeah. It's a fairly warm day today, um, ahead of a change that's coming through tomorrow that'll keep things fairly cool for the rest of the week, though. So enjoy it if hot weather's your thing. Um, yeah, getting up to potentially 40 degrees up in Mildura today, so that'll be our first 40 um, up there since uh, about March, so the first for this season, uh, and quite warm across the rest of the state as well, with just a few places along the coastal fringe that are 
having temperatures that are sort of more down towards average. Um, yeah, going for tops of 37 in uh, Bendigo, sorry, in Horsham today, 33 in Bendigo, 34 in Echuca, 31 Albury, Wodonga, Wangaratta, uh, 31 for Melbourne, Geelong, 33 out in Hamilton, 28 in Warnable, 30 degrees in Ballarat, uh, and 28 degrees in Sale. So a fairly warm day today. Um, it, tomorrow's figures look better though, don't they? Well, it depends oh, how you live. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe not so much if you live in Warrnambool or Hamilton. Um, it's, it's quite cool. So the change comes through there uh, a bit earlier. So temperatures down in the southwest, quite cool tomorrow. Um, before that change pushes through central districts um, in the morning and then into the east during the afternoon and evening. So temperatures over the uh, the north and the east of the state are quite warm again tomorrow. So 37, I think we're going for, for a chill. 32 in Bendigo, 34 in Mildura, so a touch cooler there, and 35 uh, or Riodonga. Um, but the rest of the state is a bit cooler because the change comes through a touch earlier. So, yeah, um, but that's a taste of things to come. Um, so it's cooler temperatures. We're going to be in southerlies for most of the week after that. Um, so temperatures generally below average um, all the way through till next weekend. Uh, I guess the other thing to watch tomorrow is the risk of some storms um, particularly in the east of the state, ahead of that change moving through, maybe gusty as well. Um, the biggest risk of severe storms is up in the northeast later tomorrow. Uh, not a lot of rainfall with it, though. Uh, generally, look, maybe with this change we'll get a up to a mill near and south of the ranges, and then any storms. Um, up in the, the eastern half of the state, one to five mils, but very isolated. Um, and then maybe some places around the northeast ranges might get up to 15 mils, um, but not an awful lot with it. Uh, wind and uh, wind's probably going to be the main risk out of these storms. Um, and then in those southerlies for the rest of the week, uh, it's uh, not going to rain that much either. So generally just cloudy on the south side of the ranges and the odd shower around zero to one mils Sunday and Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, we get uh, some middle-level cloud move over the state that might bring some isolated showers to parts in the north, but it's really it's a bit iffy, this one, so we're keeping an eye on it. doesn't look like there's um, significant falls out of it at this stage. The cloud will keep the temperatures inland down a little bit during the middle of the week before um, we go back to the the setup of just the showers and the cloud on and south of the ranges and uh, sunny and dry inland for the end of the week. Brilliant. Uh, Warnings-wise across the weekend in terms of any details I might have missed in in that briar that we need to know about? Yeah, look, uh, we'll be keeping an eye out for um, any of the action tomorrow. So with those... Um, with that change coming through, the fire danger at the moment up in the Mallee is looking extreme. Um, so keep an eye out later in the afternoon for any advice um, from us or the fire agencies. Uh, also looking at a risk of, with those severe storms, maybe we'll see some severe thunderstorm warnings issued later tomorrow for the um, the northeastern part of the state and also there's plenty of uh, there's high pollen, extreme pollen counts around much of the state as well so with any of those gustier storms there's a risk of some thunderstorm asthma as well up in the northeast, particularly tomorrow so keep an eye on the Department of Health um, warnings for that. Brilliant, shall do. Bri, really appreciate the update thanks for that.
Not a problem. Brian McPherson there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast. Let's go to some news that's been delivered today in Federal Parliament in Canberra. A Senate inquiry into the Water Minister's plan to extend the Murray-Darling Basin plan has recommended the legislation pass with some amendments aimed at transparency and accountability. The bill extends the deadline for projects to gather water for the environment under the Basin Plan by two years. But the inquiry's report recommends that uh, there should be dead projects should be scratched, projects that save water under the Basin Plan rather than buybacks, they, which were a key element of the plan. The committee recommends those scrapping projects that won't be done by 2026 and thus not allowing new ones to take their place in the interests of time. Uh, Also uh, recommends including better engagement of Indigenous groups with a recommendation the government consider funding a program for cultural water. And the committee endorses water buybacks, saying it acknowledges the impact buybacks have, uh, that they have an impact on communities, but says... And I quote, there is an urgent need to recover the agreed volumes of water for the environment, end quote. It was a government-dominated inquiry and not everyone is happy with the report and what the legislation means for the Basin Plan, but yet the legislation looks like it will pass the Senate next week possibly with the support of the Greens and Independents. We'll get to that in a moment. But in Parliament today, a number of people were speaking to the report from the inquiry, including Liberal Senator Anne Rustin from South Australia. Uh, She has some concerns, and this is what she said. The pathway to delivering this plan is being seriously jeopardised by the bill that we have before us at the moment. It throws out a decade or more of bipartisan approach approach that saw the states and territories as well as the Commonwealth working together to try and make sure that we took politics out of this debate and made sure that the outcomes for all Australians, those that live in the communities as well as those that rely on the communities as well as those that benefit from the communities are at the forefront of our decision making. But sadly we've put the politics back into this debate again. We've put headlines ahead of actually the delivery and making sure that we continue to consider the impact on those that are most impacted by this. And so, as somebody who always looks through my policy through a lens of rural and regional Australia, I cannot possibly support uncontrolled buybacks as this bill purports to put forward. Taking the amount of water out of the system via buybacks would completely and utterly decimate the community I live in in Remark in South Australia. It would no longer exist. Um, So with the pressure that we have at the moment in terms of cost of living um, for many of our agricultural products, this is not the economic environment to come out and say that you're buying from a willing seller. A willing seller is not somebody who has the bank breathing down their neck. A willing seller is not somebody who's forced to sell their water because they have to keep putting food on the table for their family. You cannot come in here and say that these buybacks are going to be voluntary when the pressures that are on our farmers at the moment for a whole heap of reasons will mean that they will be forced to because their banks will be demanding that they draw down on their mortgages. The Greens are not entirely happy with the the report or the extension legislation either. Sarah Hanson-Young from the Greens says the effort at transparency and accountability are recognised, but they do not go far enough. Sadly... And we can see this from the report being tabled today. Sadly, this bill does not make sure the work is going to be done. In this current legislation, 
The report makes it very clear. There is no guarantees that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan will be delivered in full or even within the new time frame. There's no legislative guarantee for the 450 gigalitres that, of course, is so urgently needed to keep our river system alive. There is no guarantee that the remaining outstanding water from the 605 Sidland programs will be delivered in full and on time. In fact, the opposite. What we have seen in uh, the inquiry into this piece of legislation, what this report clearly identifies, is that no one believes that any of these timeframes are going to be met. And yet here we are being asked to pass a piece of legislation by the government, extend the deadlines, and even their own report, their own government-chaired report, says the, the new timeframes will not be met. We'll head on to farm for some reaction in the moment because there's a, a basin plan sort of meeting on the banks of the Murray today. Before we get there, though, Victoria, the only state that has not signed on to the new basin plan extension, citing the Labor government in Victoria, citing the state's opposition to more water buybacks. In the Senate in Canberra today, Victorian Senator Bridget McKenzie from the Nationals says her state will pay the, pay the price of the Basin Plan extension with more water buybacks. Well, if you listen to the Labor Party and you listen to the Greens, you'd think all is lost for the Murray-Darling Basin, when it isn't. Because communities and industries right up and down the river have done the heavy lifting over the last decade, particularly in my home state of Victoria, where water licences actually deliver actual water, and it is the industries and communities up and down the basin who've seen almost 80% of the water required under the plan delivered. I just want to say thank you to the Labor Party in Victoria who is standing up against their mates in Canberra. That is a tough thing to do, but they're doing it because they know that coming after this water will decimate our dairy industry in northern Victoria, our horticulture industry. Buybacks, coming back in for buybacks, or a 450 gigalitres that's supposed to not be taken unless you can prove it's not going to hurt people. But they can't and they won't. And it's why this committee didn't go out into the basin to hear from real people, hear from our farmers, hear, hear from our communities. This bill will tear up a decade-long agreement to collaboratively manage our river system, turns its back on how we all agreed to make sure water is there for people, for businesses and for the environment. And shame on Labor. As Victorian Senator Bridget McKenzie for the government's part, and it was a government-dominated committee that are making these recommendations, saying the extension should pass, dead projects should be scrapped, no new projects should be allowed, better engagement of Indigenous communities and uh, endorsing more water buyback, saying that the speed and the urgent need is there and that trumps the impact on communities. Murray Watt, who's the Agriculture Minister, stood in the Senate today to give the government's view on why this legislation should be supported. This Labor government, the Albanese Labor government, values the work of our farmers and our rural communities incredibly deeply. Um, the, the agricultural production that feeds our, our country and feeds so many other countries 
is vital from a food security point of view, an export point of view, an economic point of view and a social point of view. But we do need to accept the reality that the Murray-Darling Basin is in severe distress. We're not saying that this has to be achieved only by buybacks. There are going to be, need to be buybacks to deliver the water, the, the water that's required. And the former government wasn't prepared to do that. We can't get there without some level of voluntary water buybacks. But what Minister Plibersek has made clear is that this plan being put forward by our government delivers more time to deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, more funding than has ever been provided before, and more options. Not just voluntary water buybacks, but water infrastructure investments, water efficiency investments, and we are working our way through the various uh, uh, opportunities that have been presented to the government to do that. So it's about time that people are honest about what the government is putting forward, rather than continuing to run a political campaign that is based on false information, because this is all about saving the Murray-Darling Basin, the agriculture sector and the communities that depend upon it. That is Agriculture Minister Murray Watt in the Senate just a short time ago. That's Canberra's view on the Basin legislation, on the extension which is likely to pass next week. But what is the view on farm? Annie Brown has been out uh, downstream of Lake Hume at a farm near Albury today where leaders of some of the biggest farm lobby groups in Australia have been holding an event to discuss Basin Plan legislation. Annie, what can you tell us? G'day, Warwick. Yes, I'm here down at Andrew Watson's farm, about 10-minute drive out of Albury in southern New South Wales. We've heard from Andrew before previously on the Rural Report and the Country Hour. People might remember him as the farmer who was kayaking in and out of his house last year when his property was inundated with flood water. Also had gone through, I think, three pairs of gumboots was his last tally last year when we were talking to him. But we're back out here today and it's a lot drier, much greener, but still plenty of damage that you can see around the property from the floodwater down the Murray River. You can see at the moment these huge gum trees that have fallen into the river and shown a lot of damage. I'm joined here today by David Johinke, the president of the National Farmers Federation, and as well as Xavier Martin, the president of the New South Wales Farmers Association. Welcome to you both to the Country Hour. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Let's... I guess get straight to it. The report was handed down fresh this morning, you know, with their list of recommendations. Uh, and it sounds like the Senate is backing this amendment bill and they recommend that it should pass. What's your reaction to that, David? Well, quite simply, it's no surprise we thought that the Senate inquiry was loaded. And for us to uh, stand by and see this devastation continue with the bill in its current form is something that we can't, can't do. And we're actually here to not only... See for our own, see for ourselves the damage that um, that would happen if the solution to all of our problems is just more water. When in fact we just have to be smarter with the water that we have. And there's a number of projects that have been proposed, admittedly um, aren't anywhere near completion, and that's why we're asking for more time for those to be done, and also to recognise that. Uh, there's a lot of other things that should be done, um, such as managing the carp in the river system that would have huge impacts on the, both the quality and the ability for um, us to get back to a, a river system that's a lot more healthy. So our message is quite simple. More water, just simply more water, is such a, a um, wrong avenue to take. There, there is absolutely no truth in um, that you can solve these problems that we're facing that we're seeing today with more water because quite frankly there is no capacity to have more water. In terms of 
water buybacks, if this bill is passed and the Senate is backing it, what does that mean for your campaign against it? What happens then? Well, it just means that the senators are seriously out of touch with farmers and with the environment. If that's that's their approach, that's just a nonsense. I mean, what we're seeing here is a degraded river because of all the taxpayer water that's been surged down it, full to pussy's bow, flooding out all over the lands around it. You know, it's not just in the river, it's, it's flooding other farms and commercial businesses. It's a serious mis, misguided malfunction that we're witnessing in the name of the environment. I mean, for heaven's sake, we put 40 or 50 Sydney harbours worth of fresh water out the end of the Murray River into the ocean last year and they're saying somehow the health of the river could be improved if another Sydney harbour was compulsorily surged down the river. I mean, it's just a nonsense to think that that's the solution and farmers are really frustrated that senators don't understand the importance of stopping and thinking and getting this right. So what would you like to see happen? No more water recovered for the environment? Well, look, if they really think more water uh, is worth trying, they should lease the water and see if it, if it helps the environment or dam- damages the socioeconomics as we know it will. I mean, that's the reality. Instead of confiscating water at the tax- taxpayer's expense, I mean, we've already bought 2,100 gigs and we can't get it all down the rivers. So why another 450 would actually be the solution is a nonsense. 10 million people effectively get fed by 450 gigs. So senators need to look in the mirror and say, which 10 million people around the world do we really want to starve and go cold? And the Minister Plibersek should ask herself the same thing. Why is that the way forward? It's a nonsense. I guess looking at this Senate recommendation to pass the bill, it's, it's looking more and more likely that it will get passed. Could the NFF and the New South Wales Farmers Association, could they have been lobbying harder earlier to have avoided this situation that we're at at the moment where they're going to quite extreme measures like water buybacks to recover this water for the environment and extending the Murray Darling Basin plan because it is not able to be delivered on time like what more could have been done well day 15 into my role here and I think we've gone as hard as I possibly can to make it the voice of Australian farmers heard in in all situations and quite frankly um, I agree with uh, Xavier that we have been constantly having communications with the senators and we would like to encourage them to come out and see this devastation for themselves because their vote has absolute consequences. Xavier Martin, David Johinke, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. That's Annie Brown on farm downstream of Lake Hume in Albury uh, with the head of the NFF and the New South Wales Farmers Association as well. Finally on the country out today... Uh, let's talk wool. We'll get away from water. We'll talk wool. 60,000 wool growers in Australia, and many of them struggle to find shearers each year. It's hoped breakthrough research into biological wool harvesting will give growers more lo- more options when it comes to removing the fibre from the sheep, as Cara Jeffrey reports. I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. That's University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind, and he's doing his best to convince the wool industry he's not reinventing the wheel with Bioclip 2.0. So we've been working on an alternative to shearing for about 20 years now. People would be aware of Bioclip and robot shearing and so on. We took a different approach to those. They were basically trying to replicate shearing, you know, getting the wool off by cutting it. 
one of them cut it, Bioclip cut it with a chemical, and um, robot shearing, of course, was using the same sort of um, equipment to, to cut wool. In case you missed it, about two decades ago, Bioclip emerged and was touted as a biological defleecing process. Sheep were given a single vaccination of something called epidermal growth factor, a naturally occurring protein that caused wool fibres to break. The fleece was then shed into a net the sheep was wearing and then later removed. We took a completely different approach to that. We decided that if it was possible to make wool weak, weak enough to be easily broken by a non-cutting machine, but strong enough to stay on in the field. Now that was a pr- that's a pretty big ask. Um, and probably 20 years ago, we got some way towards that. We, we got a long way, actually. We created a weak point. We could break it with a little simple machine that didn't cut you. Um, but there was something missing, and that was we were doing it with a protein called Zane. And Zane is part of corn protein. And um, when we fed that to sheep, we found that it created the weak point we wanted. But we knew that feeding wasn't the way to go. We knew that we had to have better control of how much the animal got and for a short period of time. So we, we needed an injectable. And that's where we've made the big breakthrough now. It is completely different to Bioclip. This is not Bioclip 2. This is a completely different system. The idea is we create the weak point with an injection, which is done the same as farmers do for vaccinating sheep, subcutaneous, under the skin, and we wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, for the wool to grow under that weak point, and then we break it with a simple machine that just takes it off with no combs and cutters. In fact, we hope it'll be done without any people involved. It'll just be done with an automatic machine. It's also suitable for pregnant ewes, unlike Bioclip. Professor Phil Hind and his team recently demonstrated their research at a field day hosted by Australian Wool Innovation at Canago in southern New South Wales. George Millington from renowned South Australian merino stud Collinsville was pretty impressed. If there's anything that we can invest in as an industry to actually try and make sheep farming more attractive and try and make wool growing more attractive and easier for the grower to do, I think we should do it. At the moment, from what I've seen today, it's probably more being able to give a grower who wants to shear 200 sheep and is unable to get shearers for the day, but I think there'll still be a lot of room for large contract shearing teams uh, to shear in commercial situations. Ian Lugsden and his family used Bioclip on their merino flock at Hay in the New South Wales Riverina for several years. So he was keen to see the difference, especially given the nets that were used in the Bioclip process have been ditched. The only problem we had with it was getting the wool out of the nets. Because we have a lot of trefoil, um, the, the issue then was it took quite a while to get the wool out of the nets. The first two years, or the second and the third year, we actually sent it to China in the nets. And even the Chinese didn't want to pull it out of the nets, so that's telling you something how hard it is. While Professor Phil Hind and his team of researchers have worked out how to weaken the fibre via an injectable, they now need help with an engineering solution to remove the wool. At the moment we're looking at kind of plucking machines and so it just moves across the body and the, and the wool, when, when we get it right, the wool peels off the front of that plucking device and just we, we, we hope to remove it then with a, a vacuum system. That is University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind ending that story from Cara Jeffrey. You can watch more of that on Landline this Sunday if you want to see it in action, biological wool harvesting. We've talked about it a lot. Looks like we're getting closer to seeing it. Thank you for joining us. 
on the Country Hour today. Sorry I couldn't get to all of your texts. Thank you for sending them. We do read each one as it comes in. Just run out of time to get it to you today. Remember, you can go back and listen to our program as a podcast in the ABC Listen app. Catch you soon. It's one o'clock.